All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Today, I have the honor of talking to Mr. James Clear, who is someone that I wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. And finally, we managed to get this uh, on the way. So first of all, James, thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Awesome. So um, first of all, I uh, we will obviously talk about your new book, which became a massive bestseller. Uh, but the first question, so just to give some context, I've listened to countless podcast episodes with you lately, and uh, my goal is to make this a little bit unique, not just ask you the same questions that most people ask of you, not that your answers to those questions is not interesting, uh, but hopefully we can make this uh, some of, to some of your hardcore fans and also to you a little bit more um, interesting this way. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, so the first question I'd like to ask of you is... Um, you know, with every kind of success story, which I guess we can call your story a success story uh, by this point, uh, there is always a bit of a, there are two ways of looking at it. We can either talk about a bit of a lucky break, a bit of serendipity, or just a lot of hard work and grind. And most success stories are a combination of these two factors. Uh, when you look at how you became a massive name associated with habits and your work on that topic... Objectively speaking, which factors do you think played uh, the biggest role in uh, getting where you are today? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I've thought about this as well, this kind of uh, dichotomy between luck and hard work and what role it plays in, in all of our lives. And um, the conclusion that I've come to is, like you said, it is always a combination. But the more global you look at your story and your level of success... Uh, the more luck is involved and the more local, uh, the more narrow your constraints are, the more hard work is involved. So, for example, if we ask the question like, well, how come I wrote a best-selling book versus someone who was born into a slum in Bangladesh or somebody who was raised in a family that, um, you know, didn't have enough money to put them through, uh, some type of traditional schooling or to get like, you know, um, education for, for many years, then that is mostly luck that I was born, uh, into a family in America that could afford to put me through school. And I didn't have any control over all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, there's also like luck in an even broader sense, you know, like, I am writing Atomic Habits and writing about habits and behavior change now, but this book could not have been written 50 years ago because the science wasn't in the same place. So in that sense, there's the luck of your place in history. Um, and those are very like broad global kind of views, you know, like what's the difference between you and the other 7 billion people on the planet? Or what's the difference between you and uh, your story and the people who lived throughout history before you. And uh, most of that, I think, is out of your control. But then there's, you know, there are a lot of people in the world. And so you can ask yourself, well, how come you wrote a best-selling book and not, uh, you know, all the people you went to college with or you went to high school with or the people who live on the same street as you or who have, you know, relatively similar levels of education or relatively similar backgrounds, whether it be religion or race or just general interest um, and the hobbies that you're into. And there are a lot of people that overlap with your set of um, with those set of criteria. And I think uh, that view is a little more narrow. It's not as global. And the difference between you and all the other people who go to your gym or you and all the other people who went to the same school uh, that often comes down to hard work, uh, or at least hard work is more of a factor in that comparison than it is in the global comparison. So I think, uh, 
broadly speaking, I would say I have been quite lucky, uh, both in the time and history that I'm alive and in the um, fortuitous circumstances that I was born into. But uh, luck is only an opportunity. It's only like an open door. And so if you want to capitalize on that potential, uh, you still have to have hard work. So I think that um, you can't, by definition, you can't control how lucky you are, but you can control how hard you work. And work is sort of the lever that you use to make the most of that potential luck, whatever that happened to be for you. So at the end of the day, uh, it's an interesting question and it's an interesting thing to think about. But ultimately, I think the action step is the same, which is do the best you can, work as hard as you can on things that matter to you, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to make the most of whatever luck comes your way. Yeah, awesome. And uh, this this brings to mind something that I've heard you talk about somewhere, which is the the ex- explore and exploit principle um just just for those of you or those listeners that might not be familiar with this or haven't read your book yet can you just uh, talk about this briefly and then we can uh, dig a little bit further there sure so the explore exploit trade-off uh, as it's often called is basically this idea that time is limited and so you don't have time throughout life to try everything but you still want to get good results so what's the best strategy for for managing that Uh, for managing the trade-off of your time. Um, I believe sometimes it's called the multi-armed bandit problem. But anyway, the the point is, um, roughly speaking, you want to spend a good amount of time exploring, especially in the beginning. So let's say, for example, you're working on a project at work and you're not sure the best way to approach the project or you're not sure, or you're, uh, let's say I'm writing a new article and I don't know the best topic to write about. Well, you want to explore broadly in the beginning. You want to look at a variety of ways to uh, finish the project, or in my case with the article, you want to brainstorm a bunch of possible topics. But then you start to get closer to the deadline. And as you get closer to the deadline, at some point you want to stop spending so much time exploring and just focus on whatever the best idea is you have so far and actually exploit that best idea and get some results before the time is up. The same thing can be said on like a very broad time scale. So if you think about the course of like your career, if you're very early in your career, it probably makes sense to explore a lot of options. And sometimes companies actually have this built in. You know, there are some like leadership training programs where you'll do like a six month uh, stint in different sections or different departments of the company. And part of that, part of the reason of that is to let you explore, to let you uh, get some exposure to different areas and figure out which area is best for you. Once you have done that exploring, though, uh, then you want to start to focus on the area that, again, you think you can get the best results. And similarly, your strategy changes as time goes on. If you're deep into your career, if you're 30 years in, then, you know, certainly there's nothing holding you back from switching and starting a totally new career if you'd like. But uh, if you're looking to retire soon or something like that, then it probably makes sense to exploit the best area that you have, the area where you have the most skills or the highest earning potential, rather than looking for something new because you're closer to the finish line. So roughly speaking, I think you can just summarize the explore exploits trade-off as saying, um, the more that you're winning, the more that you're getting results, the more you want to exploit that and spend less time exploring. And the more that you're losing, uh, the more that you haven't found something that delivers the results you're looking for, the more you want to continue to explore and try to find something better. But the amount of time you have left kind of uh, influences that. And roughly speaking, once you're kind of in the thick of things and doing the work, people have generally found that you want to spend about somewhere between like 70 to 90% of your time exploiting the best option that you found, 
but you never totally give up exploring. So you're still still spending, say, 10 to 30% of your time investigating new ideas and new options. And this is something that you see in large companies like Google famously has their 20% time where 80% of the work week is spent doing your job uh, and exploiting the thing that you were hired for. And 20% can be spent working on projects of your choice or kind of exploring for different options. Right. And is is that kind of how your story of becoming this writer who writes about habits and became uh, one of the world's leading experts and um, content producers on that topic? Was that kind of how that came about as well? Well, um, a little bit. So I didn't, when I first started writing, I didn't even know about this thing called the explore exploit trade-off. So I'm, I might've been doing it implicitly, right? Like that's just a label, right? That's just a title. It's just a name for, for this, you know, this strategy. Um, so you can do it without knowing the name of it, but, uh, but I didn't think about it in a careful way like that. Um, I did try a variety of things. I tried a variety of business ideas when I got started. I tried a variety of articles and topics to write about when I began writing and I gradually started to hone in on which topics people liked more and which topics were seemed to be getting like a better response, uh, or people were interested in my thoughts in those areas. So there was sort of this like triangulation of which topics seem best. Uh, so in that sense, I did it. But what I've noticed recently is that when I tend to take on a new project uh, now, you know, this is a little more speaking like individual projects than my overall career. I really like the phrase broad funnel tight filter. So like, for example, right now, so I, you know, I finished Atomic Habits. I'm kind of thinking about, do I want to write a second book? What would that look like? And so right now I'm in the broad funnel phase, which we could call the explore phase where I want to lay out as many ideas as possible. I want like a huge list of potential books that I could write and think through like all those potential options. And then I'm going to use a very tight filter and I'm only going to focus on like one or two ideas that can make it through that tight filter. And it's going to have to pass a lot of tests. Like I'll have to be interested in it. It'll need to be scientifically backed. It's going to have to um, have something that I could write engaging or entertaining stories about. It needs to be a topic that people are broadly interested in. I like things that are practical and actionable and apply to people's daily lives. So uh, right now I'm in the explore phase and then to figure out what I want to exploit, I kind of have a bunch of different rules that it needs to go through. And um, so that's one way that I kind of use that idea in my, my personal work. Yeah, and 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 this is sort of also touches on on habits partly, but also still on the theme of this explore exploit principle. That I, I think I've I've heard you mention somewhere before that there are projects and there are things that you undertake, and sometimes you don't succeed for a while, and sometimes that is because your approach is fundamentally just not the right one, and you should change something in your course of actions fundamentally. And sometimes you just have to shut up and keep putting in, in the reps. And uh, I guess the tricky thing, this is, this is something that I think a lot of people experience. And the tricky question is, how do you determine this for yourself? So for example, when you started writing about habits, you found uh, some positive feedback from it, you found the process gratifying, and you started seeing some results at least. But how do you think someone can determine this for themselves? Like whether what they're doing actually makes sense or 
Like, okay, I've been doing this for a while. I'm putting in the work. This still doesn't work. Something needs to change. How, how do you think about this? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. So just to clarify, I think what I've said previously, and as you kind of mentioned there, is this idea that there are kind of like two ways to fail. You know, like sometimes you fail because you're following the wrong strategy and just kind of beating your head against the wall and you're not getting results. And other times you fail, you have the right strategy, but you just didn't stick with it long enough. And you're right. The key question is like, which one are you facing right now? And I think the my, my kind of implicit reaction when you're asking that question is it's really about the trajectory. So if you, I say this sometimes about like building a business, if you've figured out how to make like $1,000 a month, then you know how to make $10,000 a month. You just need to do 10 times what you're doing now. Now, maybe that means you need more traffic, or maybe that means you need to hire people so you can scale, or maybe that means you need to figure out ways to be more efficient and cut costs. But the point is you've like figured out something that works. You're, you're actually on a positive trajectory right now. Um, and conversely, there are many things that you can try in business that you're, you have, you aren't on a positive trajectory. You're working hard, but like you aren't actually even seeing any progress, not even in a small way. And that I think is a signal that, okay, we need to switch strategies here. Um, so I think, you know, similarly, like if you, uh, let's say you wanted to become some Instagram star. Well, if you're posting content and you're adding five people a day, well, it's not a ton. You're not, it's going to be hard to get to a million followers that way. But if you know how to add five, then you can probably figure out how to add 50. Meanwhile, if you're posting some stuff and like nothing's moving, nobody's coming. Well, then you probably need a different angle or a different brand or something like that. So I think it's really about seeing some positive progress that that that's the feedback you're looking for that shows you I need to continue to try to find ways to improve, but I'm on the right path here. Whereas without a signal of progress, it's like, all right, this is probably the wrong strategy. Yeah, that that actually makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I'm guessing that this is how it was for you in the beginning. Like when you started writing about habits, I think, again, this is something I heard you say somewhere that um, it wasn't it wasn't like an overnight success. It wasn't like you had thousands of followers overnight, but at least you had that odd message every week from a reader who said this provided a lot of value for you. And that was just enough to indicate to you that you're doing something right and you just need to do more of that, right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, early on, I mean, my site, you know, I started at zero. So it's not like there were a lot of people reading uh, in the beginning. And um, but, you know, I would get one email a week or so. And they would say, you know, someone would say, oh, I really like this article or whatever. I can specifically remember one that I got where it was getting I was just having a tough week and it felt like it wasn't really worth it. And getting that one message was enough to get me to show up again the next week. And so it's not a lot, but it was a signal that I was at least on the right path uh, or that I was writing about something that mattered. And, um, the more that you can get a few of those, you know, especially if you start to string them together, right? If one message that could just be noise, but if you get five or 10, then it's like, okay, you know, this isn't blowing up yet, but it's a, it's a good sign that I'm at least moving in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so still just before we get into your actual book, um, I'm curious how I've never heard anybody asking you this before. So I'm, I'm really interested in uh, what you're going to say is that, in the beginning, when you started writing about habits, how, how how did the process of actual writing look like for you? Not in terms of what was your ritual in terms of sitting down and writing, but how did you come up with topics that were actually relevant? And then how did you get into the research? Because now I'm, I'm assuming that it's a fairly straightforward process because you have so much resources saved up. You've done a lot of research already. So you have like a lot of paths to start going down and then it will lead to some place at least, but in the beginning when you were sort of starting from scratch, like how did the process look like? You just sat down and like, okay, this week let's write about, I don't know, 
how to use habits for developing a habit of cleaning up your kitchen or whatever, and then you started doing the research from scratch and reading articles, or how, how do you even start out? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so first, I just broadly speaking, I like to think about reading and writing as, you know, they're deeply connected. And so I like to use the um, analogy of like a car. So reading is like filling up the car with gas and writing is like driving the car around. And if, you know, the point is not to just the point of having a car is not just to go to the gas station and fill it up with gas constantly and never go anywhere. Right. So the point is not just to consume information. But also, you can't drive forever. So if you aren't reading, if you're not taking in new ideas, at least for me, it's very hard to be able to go anywhere. And um, so I always find that if you're, if I'm trying to come up with ideas or if I'm struggling to come up with ideas, what I need to do is I need to read more. I need to fill up the tank. And um, so before I started jamesclear.com, I had this period where I read a lot. And all that reading over the course of a year or two was it was sort of like filling up the the tank with ideas to write about. And I just started kind of like jotting down notes in a word document. I had this document that was like, I don't know, maybe 60 pages long. And it was just kind of James's thoughts on habits. And that document was sort of the backbone for those first articles that I wrote. So it kind of like came out of that, my, my own notes from reading for a while. So I had some, I didn't just sit down at the computer the first day and like not have anything to go from. Um, so I did have at least like that little bit, but over the first few months, there is kind of this period where, and this is something I think is true for most creators, not just writers, you need to have a schedule to show up consistently in the beginning because you have to figure out your voice. So I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday, and that pace was really important for me to figure out like, what is my style? How do I write? How, what's my voice like? What am I trying to get across? Do I have a particular, um, type of style that I follow when I write. And I don't think you have to answer that question in any like uh, explicit sense, but it kind of naturally evolves as you show up and do the work each week. And what I gradually found was that uh, I, I wrote articles, you know, twice a week and probably I was about six months in and I looked back and I realized, huh, all of the articles that I've written, like the vast majority that have gone over well, if I was going to come up with like my top 10 list or something, almost all of them started with a little story. And so that started to become kind of my style is that I would have this like cold opening where I would start with a story and then I would get into the research and the main point. And if you look at uh, feedback and reviews on Atomic Habits, a lot of people mention that, that they like the cold openings to each chapter. They like the stories that kick off each segment. And that was very much a style that kind of evolved naturally out of my article writing. I didn't do it for all the articles in the beginning, but gradually uh, I started to realize, huh, yeah, this is something I like to do. So um, that's one example of how the writing process kind of evolved in the, the early days. And then once I realized that, well, now, as you mentioned, now it's like, okay, I need to get a catalog of stories that I can use. And I need to figure out how that weaves in with the main point I'm trying to make and, and so on. Right. And, and in the beginning, you, did you, you had this Monday and Thursday schedule. Did you never have some crisis moments when it was like, holy shit, it's Tuesday already. The article <laughs> should go out on Thursday and I'm nowhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a lot of those moments. I, the first year, for whatever reason, came much easier. I think it's because I had a backlog of some of those ideas and it was just new and fresh and I was excited. And so I was able to stick to that Monday, Thursday schedule a lot better. The second and third years uh, were much harder. There were a lot of nights where I, I stuck to it, but I published the article at 1 a.m. or, um, you know, later even sometimes. 
Um, so it became kind of like grueling because I was starting to stay up so late to get them done every time. And then, you know, as things started to go well and the audience began to get bigger, then I started to feel this internal pressure to write something really great every time. And that made it even harder to get it out on time. So, uh, I was able to stick to it for a while. I did it for about the first three years. I think I probably only missed maybe a handful of times at most in those three years. Uh, there was one time when I got really sick and I just put an article up <laughs> that said, uh, I'm sick or today article is coming. Um, but I felt like I had to press publish and like get something out there. But, uh, but yeah, o- overall it went very well. And then, uh, after the third year I signed the book deal to write atomic habits. And then I knew something had to change. I had to, I didn't have the bandwidth to be able to write two articles a week and write the book. So I kind of put the articles on pause or did them intermittently while I was writing the manuscript for the book. Right. Um, so then to touch on your book, you know, I, I, my thought was when I finished your book and I, I have this feeling with a couple of books that I've read over the years, but not with much, is that these books like yours, and I would, um, I would lump Cal Newport's, a lot of Cal Newport's work in the same category, is that these are the new generation of personal development books in that I feel like there was this long time period in which personal development type books were nothing more than just uh, pumping up people's egos and motivation and enthusiasm and just telling them over and over that you can do anything, the future is in your hands, why not you? You know, I, I would actually categorize a lot of the all-time bestsellers into this category, which are really can be really motivating and it can stroke up someone's enthusiasm, but it, they are just very non-actionable. And I feel like the fundamental difference between those and yours is that you actually give practical, actionable steps that people can take. Uh, would you would you say that's a fair uh, statement? Um, yeah, I don't. Well, I can only speak to my half of the statement. So I I do. I'm very focused on practical and actionable ideas. I think it's really important to be able to implement the ideas. Um, as far as like what came before or uh, what those other books are like, I, I'm not sure. Um, but I do think that. Uh, I love Cal's work, for example, he and I are friends. Um, I think he does a great job. And so being in conversation with him uh, is a a great uh, place to be. So it's a really good peer group. And I'm uh, appreciative that you think both of those books are useful. Um, I feel like that's what I would want as a reader, you know, like I would want to read something that I can use. Um, You know, motivation is not it's not like it's useless. Uh, It's important to, to be, you know, if you can be pumped up or whatever. But it's a short-term strategy, not a long-term one. Um, you know, I mean, we all kind of know that, right? Like we even use the word that way. Some we say, "Oh, sometimes I feel motivated, and sometimes I don't." And I'm looking for something a little more robust than that. You know, I'm looking to get results even on days when I don't really feel motivated, don't feel like it. And that's another reason why I think habits are so important. And one of the things that I tried to focus on when writing the book is how can I give people the tools they need or the strategies they need to build a system that can be more reliable than that, you know, a a set of habits that can deliver results day in and day out. And, um, hopefully people were able to, to get that out of the book. And, um, I spent a lot of time trying to make it actionable in that way. Right. So obviously, uh, the reason why the personal development sphere is doing so well in terms of book sales and other products that are being sold each year is because people have this underlying desire, chronic desire to change their destiny and how their life unfolds. And a lot of people are dissatisfied with how their lives unfolded. A lot of people feel like they have unfulfilled potential. 
So do, do you feel like habits are the key uh, factor to actually really change the uh, time course of people, life course of people who feel like they have unrealized potential? I think they're one of the best uh, strategies and tools and levers that you have. Um, generally speaking, I like to divide life into kind of two big categories or this kind of self-improvement topic into two big categories. So you've got decision-making, which sort of sets the trajectory of options for you. Um, you know, it sets the possibility. And then you have your habits, which determine kind of how far you walk along that trajectory. So the example I like to give is imagine you have two entrepreneurs and the first one decides to start like a pizza parlor. And uh, that decision to start a pizza shop has a certain trajectory that kind of, you know, you can imagine like a dotted line kind of emanating out from that decision point into the future. And then you could have another person who decides to start a software company. And that also, that decision has like a dotted line coming, coming out from it. And perhaps the slope of the potential for the software company is like steeper than the one for the pizza company. So it's got more upside. But whether or not you realize that potential depends on your habits and how you execute each day. So it's very possible that you could choose to start the pizza shop and end up with better results because you have really killer habits versus someone who just had an idea for a software company, but then doesn't really execute on it. Now, of course, ultimately what you're really looking for is to make great decisions and to have great habits, to make choices that give you a ton of leverage and a lot of upside and a bunch of potential and to have the daily habits and rituals that allow you to capitalize on that and make the most of those opportunities. So I think that habits play a really crucial role in there. Um, but your decisions and choices also matter. Right. Now, let's uh, just for a second, let's focus on the decision side of the equation, because I think uh, I like this. Um, I, I read this line in um, who is the name of the author? Getting Things Done. David Allen's uh, Getting Things Done. There was this line which said, there's always more to be done and you can only do one thing at a time or something along those lines. And I feel like the same thing applies for habits and just making decisions about what to prioritize next. Because at any one moment, I think all of us have almost an infinite opportunities as to what to try to improve and what habits to prioritize. And I feel I call this the post-motivational seminar syndrome when people get just so fired up and they design these super complex morning routines. <laughs> and But there is only so much you can do at any one time, right? Uh, not just in terms of how big the habit is, but what things you actually prioritize. So how do you think people can go about determining which areas of their lives need the biggest improvement and what will give them the biggest bang mm. for their buck? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um I don't know that there is any foolproof or bulletproof way to figure that out. Uh, if there is, then um, either if you had figured that out, you probably wouldn't. A lot of people probably wouldn't tell people because they would have a huge advantage uh, by knowing uh, which areas to focus on. Or, and this might be the case, uh, we wouldn't talk about it because it would seem so boring and fundamental that it would be easily overlooked. And uh, I think that that's true for a lot of things. So, you know, the biggest areas to focus on are probably not ones that would surprise you. Um, it's things like make sure you get enough sleep each night or try to get outside and move and walk a little bit every day. Uh, master the habit of exercise. Make sure that you do like some basic things like, um, you know, take basic self-care. So, you know, take a shower, get some sleep, get a little exercise. Also, basic focus habits like leave your phone in another room while you work each day. Things like this are not these are not things that like people would put on a list of what are choices that would radically transform your life. 
But the truth is like all that stuff allows you to show up in a, with much better energy and much better focus each day. And that can make a really big difference in the long run. So I think part of the answer to that question is a very boring set of habits that are probably easily overlooked. But then the other part is like, okay, not everything is like that. There are some strategic choices like, you know, do you invest in this particular startup or this particular stock? Or um, what kind of city should you live in? Or which city should you live in? Or what kind of job or career should you pursue? And those are like very more one-time choices, but they can have really huge impacts in the long run. So um, I don't know the answer to that. That one's going to be very, it'll be very personal, of course, because it's going to be specific to your interests and your talents and strengths. But it also is like constantly changing, you know, like the ideal city to live in for you might be different this year than it was in 1980 or the um, best stock to invest in this year is almost certainly something that's different than the best one to invest in last year. Um, So some of those choices are, they're very fluid. And I think that that makes it difficult to pin down the right way to make that choice. But um, you can always focus on the first thing I mentioned, those kind of fundamental habits that allow you to show up well And you can also, even if you don't know the best stock to pick or the best place to live or whatever, you can focus on giving yourself like a margin of safety. Um, You know, it's like, okay, I don't know if this is the best stock, but I'm not going to put everything into it. I'm just going to put the amount of money I could afford to lose into it. Um, And so by making choices like that, you kind of insulate yourself from the downside, even if you, um, there's a high potential for upside, but uh, you aren't sure enough that you should go all in on it. Right. So, um, okay, so let's let's uh, get into uh, what this interview should be about. But I just uh, drifted along with these uh, seemingly random questions, but I thought it was interesting nevertheless. So what, what do you think is the biggest mistake um, that people tend to make or a couple of biggest mistakes? I don't know if there is one that stands out as number one when trying to uh, adopt a new habit. Let's just uh, start there. Well, probably the biggest decision you're going to make is which habit you try to build. And that sounds simple, but it's not just like, oh, whether I choose the habit of exercise or meditation or something like that. I'm also talking about the scale at which you choose that particular habit. So let's say, let's take exercise, for example. You could choose an exercise habit of, I want to work out for an hour, four days a week. Or you could choose an exercise habit of, I'm going to do one push up four days a week. Both of those are exercise, but they're very different. And the likelihood that you're going to stick to them is incredibly different. So, I think the most important choice that you'll make or the most common mistake you'll see people uh, fall into is starting too big or choosing a habit that's too difficult. And the the example I love to give with this, um, in the book, I talk about this concept that I call the two-minute rule. And the basic idea is you take whatever habit that you're trying to build and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So, you know, read 50 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out your yoga mat. And you're focused on just kind of the first movement on making the first action easy, something you can do in two minutes or less. And sometimes people like push back on that or resist a little bit. Cause it sounds almost silly. It's like, well, I know the real thing I want to do is like actually do the workout. I'm not actually looking to just take my yoga mat out. But you know, I had this reader who he ended up losing over a hundred pounds. And one of the first things they did was he went to the gym, but he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car and drive home. And it sounds ridiculous. It sounds silly to people at first, but what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week. 
And once he was the kind of person who drove there all the time, then he actually had a chance to be the kind of person who worked out and, you know, did something there for like an hour or whatever. But if you don't figure out how to show up, then you never really have the chance to optimize it. So that's why I like to say, like, you need to make it the standard in your life before you try to optimize and improve it. And that's a, I think a crucial thing about habits, like a habit must be established before it can be improved. And so focusing on the smallest iteration of that habit, something you can do in two minutes or less, you know, so rather than study for an hour every night, it becomes take out my notebook or, you know, uh, like I said, just take out your yoga mat or for mine, for uh, exercise, I, my, the key thing I focus on is change into my workout clothes. If I do that, then the rest of the thing will kind of follow naturally. But my point here is that we often get these very grand ambitions. We get really excited about the change we want to make. And when we do that, it's easy to bite off more than you can chew. It's easy to choose a habit that's too big. And I think that that's like the common mistake that people have, especially during a period where they're feeling motivated to change. They're feeling like, all right, this is it. This is the time when I'm going to do it. Um, and instead, my encouragement would be first and foremost, become the type of person who shows up every day, even if it's in a small way. And once you do that, then you've got a lot of options for improving from there. Right. And and what would you say to people who, because this is something that I've fallen for a, a lot, pretty much every year, I fall for this at least once where I feel like, okay, I... I should have prioritized this one area. I should have improved myself in this area for so long. And now it's like, man, it's too late. Like, I understand that I shouldn't start too big, but man, I wasted so much time. I, I don't have time to mess around with this two-minute stuff. Like, I, <laughs> I need big changes now. And I think a lot of people have this sense of urgency, especially when they compare themselves with other, other people. I think that social media is especially bad about this or the internet in general. So what would you, what would you say to people who feel like this? Yeah. What you really are need to do here, I think, is shift the conversation in your mind from external to internal. So that whole conversation around, I don't have time to mess around with this. I've wasted too much time. I look at the results that I have versus the other people you know, around me or whatever. The only reason you're using phrases like that is because it's an external comparison. You're The reason you think, for example, you know, imagine if there was not another human in the world, you would not have any context for saying, Oh, I've wasted time on this because you don't know what good or bad looks like. You don't know what, uh, you know, what you don't know that you're behind the curve because there is no curve to compare to. And so all those type of, uh, internal, all those type of judgments are based on external comparisons. So instead, if you can shift to an internal comparison and say, all right, you know, okay, take out my yoga mat for two minutes or do five pushups or read one page. Well, how does that compare to where I was yesterday? Well, it compares favorably, compares positively. It's better than I was yesterday. And so if you can shift the comparison from external to internal, then you are able to capture, which is some, one of the most important things for change, which is a feeling of progress. You're able to feel like you're moving forward. And I think ultimately, if you feel like you're being successful, if you feel like you're making positive progress on your ultimate goal, then you have a reason to show up again tomorrow. But if you have these external comparisons, it's very easy to always feel like a failure, to always feel like you're not making enough progress because you'll always be able to find someone who is more fit or has more money or, um, you know, has the thing that you're trying to achieve, but in even greater proportion. And so uh, ultimately, I think the only healthy way to try to have this conversation with yourself and improve is to shift that to an internal comparison and uh, focus on the progress you're making 
rather than on the current state that you are in. Right. Now, that's that's very well said. And I think another issue here is that when you're comparing self with other people, I think every person, pretty much every every person has that one area where they were able to just adopt habits and um, adopt new systems and make progress without that much trying or that much required time to make that particular habit stick. For example, when I started my exercise habit, it was so gratifying for me in that process, in that given moment. Like I just love being in the gym and just murdering myself with a whole bunch of sets and pushing my muscles close to failure. And I was enjoying the pain of the pump and the burn and everything. I think this is kind of the story of a lot of people who become these gym obsessed uh, people and will read fitness forums all day long. So, and everybody has something like that. For some people it's work, for others it's language learning, whatever. And I think by comparing ourselves with people who have that particular come to Jesus moment in a given area, that's really bad in terms of setting ourselves up for feeling like a failure. Uh, would you agree there? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think, uh, to your point about like it just being natural or kind of feeling there are certain habits that you just, it's easier to become obsessed with. Um, I think that's true. I, I think, uh, you know, I write about this a little bit later in the book about the overlap between personality and habits. And, uh, for whatever reason, I think there are certain habits that just kind of resonate with people or like, uh, they play to your strengths. And when a habit plays to your strengths, it's much easier to fall into it. I think partially because you're making progress, what we were just talking about, uh, in a, in an easier fashion, right? If you're, if you're playing a game that you are genetically predisposed to be good at, whether that's personality or actual physical characteristics or whatever, you tend to just be good at that thing then it's more likely that you're going to make progress. And if you make progress, then it's more likely you're going to feel motivated to show up again the next day. So ultimately, I think there is something uh, desirable or um, it can be a useful strategy to try to find habits that overlap with your genetic predispositions and uh, focus on those because you're more likely to succeed in that area. Yeah, I actually love that you brought this up because this was precisely one of the things that I wanted to ask you about because you were writing about the role of genetics in, in Atomic Habits. And, you know, there are obviously many things that determine how well you will do in a given area. It's more obvious in fields like athletics. But when it comes to, for example, just general life, academic or career success, arguably one of the most predictive factors behind becoming successful in life financially, academically, is conscientiousness and just being kind of driven and industrious. And when someone's lacking that, like... For someone like me, for example, I hear a lot of, for example, on podcasts on which you appear, for example, I hear a lot of people talking about, like, man, I just can't turn off. Like, I always want to work. I'm a workaholic. And I'm listening to that. And I'm like, man, I'm not that guy. I'll be completely honest. Like, I wish I was a workaholic and I couldn't turn off for one moment. But I am I have issues with procrastinating. I put off things that are otherwise meaningful to me. And I feel this inner resistance to just put my ass in the chair and type away on something that I really want to do because I feel this inner drive, but perhaps I'm just, I'm just not wired that way. So how do you think um, someone like me can, me can go about this and play to, play to my advantage if there is any advantage in not being that industrious? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I think that there are, uh, there's a shadow side to every strength, right? And so for people who feel like they're workaholics so they can never turn off, the shadow side of that is, you know, they are always spending time working, which means less time with friends and family, or they're constantly thinking about like the next thing in their business. Like they're, um, 
perhaps even a little to a certain degree, like stressed or anxious about it. The idea that like, Oh, I can't turn off like, man, we have this project, but it's not done. Or, uh, Oh, if we could just get distribution in this channel, then, you know, this would be moving smoother or whatever. They're like constantly thinking about the problem. Whereas, uh, for you, perhaps the, uh, strength is that it's easier for you to relax. Um, or it's easier for you to have some downtime and enjoy the moment. Whereas, uh, the shadow side of that strength is that it's harder to get moving, you know, it's uh, easier to procrastinate and so on. I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing here, but my point is that all strengths come with some kind of shadow side. Um, to your question though, about what can you do to overcome procrastination or make it more likely that you'll be able to work? I think one effective thing, uh, one thing we've already mentioned, which is make it make the action smaller. Um, you know, so if you're, uh, if you're comparing, do I write this 12 page report or do I watch Netflix? Well, Netflix seems much less painful, much easier, much more convenient and entertaining than writing a 12 page report. But if you're comparing, do I write one sentence or do I walk downstairs and turn on Netflix? Well, those are getting close to the same amount of work. Writing one sentence is not that much harder than walking down the steps and turning on the TV. So the scale, if you can reduce the scale of the task, then it becomes less appetizing to procrastinate on it. So that's for one thing, but we've already talked about the two minute rule and that kind of idea. The second thing you can do, which I, I have a list of these in Atomic Habits, is use a commitment device to kind of change the equation in your mind. So let me give you an example. Um, let's say that you sit down and you're like, all right, tomorrow's the day. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to go for a run. So I'm going to get up at 6 a.m. and go out. But then you go to sleep and tomorrow rolls around and 6 a.m. comes and your bed is warm and it's cold outside and you don't really feel like getting up. So you just decide, you know what? I'll just press snooze and stay in. So you procrastinate on this idea of going for a run. But you can use a commitment device. And so let's say you rewind the clock and it's, uh, you know, the day before again, and you text your friend and you say, hey, can we meet at the park at 630 and go for a run? Well, now you have a running partner. Now you have someone to hold you accountable. So you go to sleep and 6 a.m. comes around and your bed is still warm and it's still cold outside. But now if you don't get out, you're a jerk because you leave your friend at the park all alone. And so that commitment device it changes the equation. Now all of a sudden it's no longer attractive to procrastinate because it means that you're a jerk or there's a cost associated with the behavior. And that's really what commitment devices can help you do. They, they lock in your future behavior often by creating some kind of cost to procrastination. And so if procrastination does not bear any cost, it's easy to uh, fall back into it. But if there are negatives associated with it, then suddenly it doesn't look as appetizing. So I think that, uh, that that's one possible way to overcome that if you feel like that's more like your default. Yeah. And, and I think another really good one, which you also wrote a lot about in your book, which is A, environmental design or environment design. And the other, other one is this concept of the decisive moment. And I think both both of them are spot on. And I think this will resonate with with a lot of people. But can you just elaborate on these briefly? Sure. So um, environment design is a big strategy. I talk about it in chapter six and 12. Um, but the basic idea is you're trying to redesign your space to favor the habits that you're looking to build. So uh, in some cases, this means making the cues of your good habits more obvious and the cues of your bad habits uh, invisible or hidden. In other cases, it means reducing the friction associated with the task. So reducing like the number of steps in your physical environment between you and the good action and between you increasing the number of steps between you and the bad habit. So for example, take the habit of like watching television. If you walk into pretty much any living room, 
where do all the couches and chairs face? Right? They all face the TV. So it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? It's the most obvious, most frictionless task in that area. Now, there are a variety of steps you could take. You could like turn the chair so that it doesn't face the TV uh, and it faces like a coffee table with a book on it instead. Or you could take the remote control and put it inside a shelf or inside a, um, a drawer so that you're less likely to see it. But you could also, so that just kind of, you could take the TV and put it in like a wall unit or a cabinet. So it's like behind doors. And all of those actions kind of reduce the obviousness of the cue in the environment. But you could also increase the friction of watching TV. You know, you could like take the batteries out of the remote control uh, so that it takes, you know, 10 seconds to put them in and turn it on each time. Or you could unplug the TV after each use and then only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you can't just like mindlessly, you know, turn on Netflix and find something. And you really want to be extreme. You can like take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only set it back up when you want to watch something bad enough to put that amount of work in. But you can imagine here how those various environments change. If your TV is in the closet, that changes the habit of watching it, right? The Just the environment design changes the likelihood of you setting it up and turning on the TV and so on. Um, similarly, I, I always like to use this example, BJ Fogg. He's a professor at Stanford. He also writes about habits. And uh, he had this example where he, he liked eating popcorn. He enjoyed popcorn, but he just didn't want to eat it as much. So he took it out of his pantry, walked down the hallway, went into the garage, climbed up on the ladder and put it on the highest shelf in the garage. Now, if he wants to eat it, he can just go get it. It's only going to take a minute or two. But if he's kind of designing for his default action, for his lazy decision, well, then he's not going to go out there and get it. And so that's kind of the core idea of environment design. If you create a space where it's easier to do the good habits and harder to do the bad ones, then you're more likely to, to follow through um, on the things that you want to do. And then the, the second idea that you brought up is this idea of the decisive moment. And this is really about mastering the moment that kind of initiates the next chunk of time. So I mentioned a while ago that I like to focus on changing into my workout clothes. Well, the reason that I do is that that moment of changing into my workout clothes, that's a decisive moment that kind of determines what the next two hours look like. If I change into my workout clothes, I'm going to get in the car. I'm going to drive to the gym. I'll do the workout. Like pretty much everything is already decided. So what I, uh, another way to, to think about this, like there's a decisive moment for me each morning where I sit down on my computer and either I open up Evernote and I start working on the next article or I go to ESPN and I check the latest sports news. And it's really what happens in the next like hour is really kind of determined by what happens in that decisive moment of do I open Evernote or do I check ESPN? And if you can master that little action, then you find like, oh, the next chunk of time is suddenly much more productive. And so little decisive moments like that, the little choices that kind of kick off the next chunk of time, that's a really key place to focus because you don't have to worry about mastering the whole thing. You just focus on like getting yourself moving in the right direction. Yeah. And I, maybe in that case, something like, for, for example, in your case with the ESPN news, something like a website blocker or something where you would open ESPN and then instead of that, the message pops up that says, James, you're about to do it again. Like that, that could be ineffective. That kind of combines the decisive moment component and the environment design component. Yeah, that's great. That's a good example. And I think that uh, this is something that's true about many of the strategies that I write about in Atomic Habits, which is they're very powerful when used together. You know, they're all kind of like individual tools. And what you're looking for is like, which combination of these uh, kind of leads to my desired result. And so they, they're all, they're individual strategies and they can work on their own, but they can be very effective when layered together like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, another really awesome concept that you shared in your book, and I, I've heard you mention that in other places as well, which is this concept of never miss twice. Um, so first of all, well, yeah, first of all, let's just get into that. And then I have a follow-up question on that. So what, what, what is that concept about? Well, a lot of people are familiar with this idea of habit tracking or of uh, kind of, you know, like each time you do a habit, you put a little X on that calendar day or something like that. So you're sort of tracking your behavior. My dad does that. He, uh, he likes to go swimming. And so each day that he swims, he has this little calendar pocket calendar and he like puts an X on that day. And then when he gets to the end of the month, he adds up, you know, how many days, how many X's he has, how many times he went swimming. So this, that strategy is called habit tracking. And a lot of people who track their habits, they, uh, they're focused on building up a streak. So that becomes like one of the things, you know, don't break the streak or don't break the chain. That's the type of thing that, uh, that people say a lot. Well, uh, that's a great strategy. I use it myself. I have a, a habit journal that I created that has habit tracker templates in it. Um, and so I use one of the journals and, you know, fill out my habit tracker each day and so on. And it feels nice to, to not break the chain. But one of the key things to, to realize is that at some point, every streak breaks, right? You get sick or your kids have to stay home from school or you're on vacation or you have to travel for work or whatever it is, but something interrupts the streak. And at that point, it becomes easy to become a little bit frustrated or maybe even depressed about like losing your progress. You feel like, oh, you know, I was doing this for 23 straight days and then I missed a day. Um, and so this is where never miss twice comes in, because whenever you break your old streak, I think the most important thing is to start the new one as quickly as possible. And so the mantra that I like to keep in mind is never miss twice. And, you know, it's like, all right. I wish that I hadn't broke that diet, but never missed twice. So let me make sure the next meal is a healthy one. Or I wish I hadn't skipped my swimming today, but never missed twice. So let me make sure I'm back in the pool tomorrow. And you're basically trying to build that new chain as quickly as possible. And the reason I think that never missed twice is a powerful or important mantra is that it's very easy to get all or nothing about your habits. You feel like, oh, I'm all in. I've done this 17 straight days. Like, yes, this is in my new lifestyle. Or you break it and they're like, oh, see, I knew I wasn't going to be able to stick to it. So why bother? And we, for whatever reason, we get in our heads and we think, if I can't do this perfectly, then why should I do it at all? And never miss twice kind of helps you overcome that, uh, that insufficiency or that hurdle in your mind and allows you to get back on track quickly. If someone is trying to adopt a new habit and then they just uh, consistently miss twice, so they start out and then all of a sudden they fall off the wagon for three days and then they try to get back in, but right away they fall off the wagon again for two or three times in a row. Is that a good indication that something either in the habit itself, maybe that's just some habit that they're trying to adopt that just doesn't make sense or their strategy for adopting that habit doesn't make sense? Like, how do you think uh, people should go about that? Yeah, I think that's probably the correct um conclusion to take away from that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't do the habit or that, you know, you're not going to be able to, you're not destined to stick to it or anything, but you may need to try a different iteration of it. So for example, um, let's say you're trying to build a meditation habit and you keep trying to do it in the morning, but you find that, um, you aren't able to stick to it consistently because that's also when you're getting your kids ready for school. And it's just really hard for you to get up early enough to fit that in or whatever it is. Um, it just doesn't seem to happen. Well, that doesn't mean that you're destined to not meditate. It just might mean maybe you need to do it like after the workday, you find a quiet space where you can do it for five or 10 minutes and then you drive home or something like that. Um, maybe you need a different time to insert it or 
perhaps you are able to stick to it if it was a smaller version. You know, maybe your habit that you're trying to track is reading 20 pages per day, but reading 20 pages a day turns out to be too difficult to squeeze in. But if you scaled it down to read one page a day, then you'd be able to stick to the streak. So it, it may just require some adjustment. Right. So, uh, so James, we pretty much went over all my questions. And of course, we didn't actually get into the meat of things, which is the laws of acquiring new habits. But um, I guess people can just pick up your book. Uh, luckily, we live in this weird world where something as valuable as a book like that is uh, accessible fairly cheaply. So I recommend everybody to pick that up. Um, but thank you so much for all the great knowledge you dropped. And one final question I have for you is, um, you know, I found myself a couple of habits which I notice almost without fail that anytime I'm sticking to those, things are going well. For example, if I wake up and don't check social media and email and those things right away, then I'm going to have a couple of productive hours right upon waking up. Or when I'm going to eat and then I don't have my phone next to me and I'm just focusing on my meal, that's going to be a nutritious meal consumed in a healthy manner up until comfortable satiety, all that stuff. So do you have a couple of habits that you picked up over the years which have become game changers for you and are these decisive sort of uh, moments or mini habits that kind of branched into larger um, results that you acquired? Yeah, good question. The The one that makes the biggest difference for me is exercise. If I get to the gym four days a week, then the whole rest of my life falls into line much easier. Um, I get the benefits of exercise, of course, but like I also I tend to eat better. I sleep better at night because I'm tired from the workout, which means I wake up the next morning and I uh, have better energy. Um, so none of, you know, that that's not an answer that I think is surprising to people, but it is something that I find I need to remind myself of because when you get really busy or a project gets very important, it's easy to rationalize. Oh, no, this is too important. I need to do this. But really, the thing that I need to do is get to the gym. Um, and so there are a few key things like that, but exercise is probably the number one for me. Awesome. Yeah, and I can definitely sympathize with that. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, James, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you. So let's just um, uh, let people know where they can find you, uh, your book, where they can find that, uh, all your work that is available online, uh, all that stuff. Sure. So if you'd like to check out more, you can just go to jamesclear.com and you can click on articles. I have them organized by topics. You can kind of poke around there and see what's interesting to you. If you click on books, then you'll find a link to Atomic Habits as well as the Habit Journal, which has the habit tracker templates in it and uh, basically it's a journal or a notebook that's designed to make it easier to build good habits. So anyway, you can check those out there and uh, social media profiles are also on jamesclear.com. And finally, if you just want to go straight to the book, then it's called Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. And you can find that at atomichabits.com. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview with James Clear. This was a bit of a change, uh, not fitness related, but in the near future, I will try to get on more people like James. I think it's always good to talk about various topics and pick the brains of people who have expertise in, you know, fields that have the potential to have a really beneficial impact on our lives. So I hope you enjoyed this interview as well. If you did and you're interested in hearing more stuff like this and also more of the regular fitness stuff that we typically talk about on this podcast, then be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this. If you are listening to this on iTunes or on some podcast player, then you can just search for The Sustainable Self development podcast and you can find the podcast there and all the previous episodes 
And if you watch this on YouTube, then be sure to subscribe. There will be some more cool stuff coming out in the upcoming weeks and hopefully months and years like this. So yeah, I guess that's all I had to say today. Um, and have a nice weekend. And with that, see you next time.